Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Rundown with Shannon Robnett. Today, my guest is Sean Ross. Sean, say hello to everybody. Hi, everybody. So Sean is in the uh, dubious world of 1031. And what that, uh, for those of you that don't know, is a 1031 is a tax code that allows people to transfer their gains in real estate from one property to another without paying Uncle Sam. Now, I know that sounds exciting, but rather than have me explain that, I'm going to let Sean tell you a little bit more about his journey to get into the 1031 world and what this magical uh, elixir that he has that allows for the non-taxing of your funds to come about. So, Sean, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, my my journey to 1031s was a little circuitous. Uh, I, I'll tell people, uh, modifying the language here a bit, that I fell rear end backwards into it. <laughs> I, I I started out in the equities world, right? I was a financial advisor, a trader, um, uh, did played some insurance game as well, right out of undergrad. Then I found my way into freelance journalism after I left one of my employers in Denver. I moved to Chicago. And as, as you do, you, you meet a lovely lady and she convinces you to move somewhere else. So uh, part, of, part of that was um, a change in career for me too. So I uh, joined a company that my stepfather had helped found about 25 years earlier doing 1031 exchanges. Now I'm one, interested in investing and two, sort of philosophically libertarian-ish. So the idea of saving people on taxes uh, pardon the noise. My dog is underneath me right now. There you go. Uh, Part of the working from home thing. Yeah, that's right. I have a beagle. His name is Watson, and he's been moving all over the world with me. Uh, so uh, I, I joined the company, learned about 1031s. At the same time, my wife got accepted to a medical school in Toronto. And so we moved to Toronto. And the nice thing about this industry is we can really help you from anywhere, right? I don't, you don't have to come to a physical location to execute a 1031, even though we do have a physical office. So I was up there for a few years and then coronavirus hit. Right. Uh, so my wife and I, at the advice of the US Border Patrol, uh, got out while the getting was good and moved near her family down in Southern Missouri. So that's where I am right now, talking from my home so, office. So your company is based in Denver, you were living in Toronto, but now you're in Missouri. That's right. Okay, That's boys right. and girls, for those of you that have followed along, I think you've crossed, uh, you've made a triangle there somewhere. Um, yeah. So how long are you anticipating being in Missouri? The goal is, is probably a year or so. My, my wife's father has some health issues, so we wanted to come down here and be supportive of him. She's taking a short break from medical school. We'll continue that journey either in Scottsdale or in Vancouver, most likely. Yeah, because those are only similar places, right? I that's mean, right. Um, let's see, Scottsdale, Vancouver. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's not much in common, except that there are only about eight programs in the continent that uh, have which which she's in the in the running for. So, um, yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm very very lucky that my job allows me to transfer. We have a home office in in Denver, Colorado. Um, and my company has been uh, kind enough to uh, accommodate my travel arrangements. And part of the, the nice aspect and side effect of doing that is you get to meet a lot of interesting people, including interesting investors in different real estate markets. So you're not always circulating in the same crowd. And so, so before we get into, I, I want to hear some of the stories about your interesting investors for sure, but tell us a little bit about 
function and in the actual mechanism of a 1031? 1031s started out as a way for people to trade properties with one another um, or assets with one another without triggering a tax event. So uh, two of the common old school examples are you have this plot of land, I have this plot of land, you like mine and I like yours, you can swap. It, there were, for a long time, you could do more than just property exchanges. People would swap cattle um, or, or pieces of art, things like that. Over time, as the IRS um, uh, built on the code and as courts and different regulatory agencies got their fingers in this, 1031's massaged into something a little bit more programmatic, a little bit more formulaic. And you have, after the tax code, uh, the new tax act in 2017, Today's 1031 environment really is just real estate for real estate. And if you follow a certain process, the IRS says, because you're not decreasing the net amount of investment in the economy, we're not going to tax you just because you're trying to change the shape or location of your investment. So let's, let's put together a scenario. Let's say that I have decided I want to sell my property, mm-hmm. but I don't want to pay taxes on it what would be my steps as far as my realtor has done his job, we have it under contract, mm-hmm. now what do I do to not pay taxes? Okay, well, let's, let's lay some ground rules uh, and then what we'll get into what, what steps you would take. You, you're able to conduct a 1031 exchange if you're selling investment property. Uh, and investment property just means you're held for investment, you're generating cash flow from it, or you're using it in trade or business. You don't need to do a 1031 exchange if it's a primary residence, and you can't do it if it's a vacation home of yours. So let's lay that out at the start. The, if you want to start a 1031 exchange, there are a couple things you need to um, uh, gather beforehand. One is, what do you plan on using the proceeds for? Because if you have other goals in mind besides just putting these into a new investment, you really have to start fleshing that out early because it's hard to change gears or change directions midstream. Once you start a 1031 exchange, you really are locked into fewer and fewer options as the clock starts ticking. So you wanna figure out exactly what do you want the proceeds for? And then it's a really good idea to have a sense of where you wanna land. What are you hoping to buy and why? Because the hardest part of most exchanges is the identification window, which we can get into in a bit. So the sooner you can start planning on what you might do with the proceeds, the better, and then Last and not least, you need to find an exchange company that can help accommodate and facilitate the transaction. The only reason a company like ours exists is because the IRS says you can't do it on your own. If you attempt to do a 1031 exchange yourself, then the IRS uh, doesn't allow you to take possession of the proceeds from your own sale. Okay. So, so the IRS doesn't trust me, mm-hmm. but the IRS trusts you to hold on to my money between the sale of the one and the purchase of the other. Yeah, I'll amend that a little bit, Shannon. So I'll say, we don't hold on to the funds and we don't want to. That's too much liability for us and too much risk for the client. What we do is we set up secure banking relationships. So we would find an FDIC-insured bank that has a healthy balance sheet and say, here's here's an institution where we can set up an escrow account in your name. So if you're the exchanger, it would be the Shannon Robnet uh, account and it would have proceeds from Shannon Robnett's investment sale, and only you could direct whether funds go in or out, but that has to come through the exchange company's direction. But at that time, doesn't the IRS say that that's your money, not mine? 
Tech, legally and technically, yes. So there's, there's a funny thing that we don't uh, often express when we're discussing this in, in a broader investment. And most people assume that the 1031 company facilitates and that's the only role they have. In a very literal sense, what the 1031 company does is take possession of the property that you're selling, sell it, hold the funds in your name, buy a new property in your name, and then transfer the new property to you. Now, this has been so streamlined that it, it practically functions very much like you actually are the seller on one end and the buyer on the other. But legally speaking, that's not what happens. Right. And so, so there's a lot of trust that a company like yours has to build. There's a that's track right. record that has to be built because I'm literally trusting you with the whole proceeds of this building. Mm-hmm. And not that the, I mean, the court systems are there if, if we needed them, but there's yeah. still the whole, there, there's the ugliness of what would have to happen. So you're literally saying right at, right the minute before I sell my property to Mr. Johnson, you mm-hmm. step in and go, we are now the owner. We sell to Mr. Johnson. And then mm-hmm. when Shannon directs us to, we will buy on Shannon's behalf. Mm-hmm. And then when we're done, we'll give that property back to him. Exactly right. Now, okay. you hear horror stories. This is less common now than it used to be. But you hear horror stories still of some qualified intermediary took their client's funds and ran off to Mexico with $200 million. Right. Most of the time they get caught, not always, but most of the time they get caught. But it still leaves a lot of people in a bad spot. So knowing who you're working with right. is really important, not just in, in a 1031, but really in any financial intermediary uh, situation. Correct. So then talk to me a little bit more, uh, Sean, about what happens. So, so we've got it set up. We've, we put the wheels in motion. We know that mm-hmm. I'm going to sell property A for a million dollars because everybody yes. wants a million dollars, right? Yes. That's <laughs> right. such an easy number to say. Yes. Uh, so we're going to sell for a million dollars and we're going to sell it on the 1st of May. Mm-hmm. What are my steps between there and the end of my 1031? As you're getting ready to sell. Now, if you're selling for something in seven figures, the likelihood is if you hold it for any amount of time, you have some gain in there and it, the 1031 does make sense. But you do want to back up and make sure that 1031 is really your best bet because there are circumstances where it isn't. So make sure that you understand what's the tax liability if I don't do an exchange? What are my options besides 1031 exchanges? Once you get past that point, then the property is under contract or at least it's listed and you want to get this started you would do a couple of things. You would reach out to a 1031 exchange company to make sure that you can trust them, understand their process if you don't already have an existing relationship there. Then if you're executing the exchange through, or pardon me, the transaction through a title company or an attorney's office or whoever is is handling the closing, you need to put them in contact with the 1031 company because the 1031 company, part of our job is to put, is to coach the closer through how to structure something in an IRS compliant way for an exchange. So that's getting ready for the sale transaction. Now, in between, you'll sign a 1031 exchange agreement, which which just states what we've discussed earlier, that we'll step in, act as the seller on your behalf, we'll escrow the proceeds. You'll sign an escrow agreement to let you know where the funds will be deposited and under what terms. And then once you sell, assuming that you've done everything correct to that point, then you, start, you trigger two clocks. The first clock is a 45-day identification window, and the second clock is a 180-day uh, uh, 1031 window. These are actually, let me back up a little bit. 
this has changed a little bit in light of the coronavirus outbreak. But in normal, in, in normal times, right. if you sold tomorrow, you would have 45 days thereafter to identify what you might want to purchase with the proceeds. And then you would have 180 days from your sale tomorrow to actually purchase one, one or more of the assets that you identify. Um, and then because of the massive disruption caused by the coronavirus outbreak, they have now extended the windows for a lot of 1031 exchangers, but not all of them. Right. So that you have until July 15th to identify, uh, or if your 180 days um, would have ended before then, your 180 days now gets extended to July 15th as well. So anyway, I'll the stop there for questions. Environment, May 1st, I'm going to sell my property. The mm-hmm. deal goes down um, and, and, and I sell that to Mr. Johnson. I have 45 days to identify another property. Now, mm-hmm. do I, does that have to be in the state that I'm in? Can I, can I go? Are there limitations? Mm-hmm. Good question. So it can be in any of the, uh, any of any, United, pardon me, you can exchange from any state to any other state. And there are some territories thrown in there as well. Mm-hmm. Or you can exchange from a foreign location to a foreign location, but not either or. You can't go from a domestic to foreign or vice versa. So if you sell in Idaho, you can purchase in Maine or Texas or Alaska. That's fine, but you can't purchase in Korea okay. or vice versa. All right. Now, there are a couple other restrictions on the identification too, and a couple of common misconceptions that, that if I can clear up here for a second, I'd like to. One is the property doesn't have to be under contract and you don't need a letter of intent or a written offer for it to be identified. All you need is a non-ambiguous description. So what I mean by that is a property address or something that nobody would confuse, like Yankee Stadium, for example. So that if you were if you were exchanging into Yankee Stadium, you could just write Yankee Stadium. I think we're, I think we're miscon, miscon, uh, We've got a misconception about how much money I have to. Exchange. I don't <laughs> think I can afford Yankee Stadium. Yeah, yeah. But well, but you're right. wearing pinstripes, so yeah, it's identifiable. Now, am I, am I, do I only get one? No, it, there are a couple of different rules here. We, we strongly advise most people identify three at a time. And what that means is you have a property that you want to purchase and then get a couple of backups, but don't identify more than three at once because if you do, the rules change, you get a lot harder. Okay. Now, you're not locked into those three when you pick them. If, if you're still before the end of your 45th day, you can change the three as many times as you like. You're only locked into that list on day 46. Okay. Now, if you identify more than three, you can do it, but don't do it without consulting your exchange company first, because there are a lot of restrictions that make it very difficult. Which again is why you need a reputable exchange company and one that has got a track record that you can fall back on and go, you guys know how to do this, right? That's right. So you've named your three, your 45 days is up, you're locked in, your number one pick falls through, your number two pick falls through, you're down to number three. What mm-hmm. happens if that falls through also? There's two scenarios here. The first scenario is you're still in your ID window. You're still within the 45 days or today you're, you're still before July 15th because you've gotten the extension from the IRS. Right. So if that's the case, then just tell your exchange accommodator, hey, by the way, take this property off the list, take this one off the list and add these, add some new ones. If you're past your ID window, then you're, you're, you're out of luck. This is a really, really strict limitation. A lot of rules in 1031 exchanges have some, they're open for interpretation. This is not one of them. If you're past your 45th day and you have not properly identified one of the assets you'd like to purchase, 
then you're going to fail your exchange. And at that point, it's like the exchange never took place. You're going to owe the same amount of taxes and your reporting will very likely be the same unless you're straddling two tax years. Um, but uh, so there's no penalty just, involved. There's no IRS penalty, but most exchange companies, ours included, um, if you've reached that point, isn't going to refund the fee for the 1031 exchange. So your downside is what you could have done with that money in the interim plus the exchange fee, but there's no IRS penalty. Right. So now let's, let's back up and let's assume that we did identify properly. We've got a winner. Number one is going to make it. Uh, we've got everything else lined up. But the problem is I sold my first property for a million dollars. Yeah. And the new property is $2 million and I only have $600,000 cash. Can we involve banks in these transactions when we're doing 1031 exchanges? Very good question. Let's go over uh, uh, another IRS rule that is also often misconstrued. If you sell for a million dollars and your equity in that property was 600,000, you walked away with $600,000 in proceeds, you have to hit two threshold to fully defer your taxes. The first is trade equal or up in value, which means if you sold for a million, and let's ignore closing costs for a second. If you sold for a million, what you purchase, the network of assets that you purchase on the, on the back end of the exchange have to be worth at least a million dollars. The second rule is, all of the net proceeds need to transfer into the replacement assets. So all 600,000 need to go into the replacement properties. If you are buying above and beyond what you sold for, you have a couple of options. You can supplement that with outside cash or new debt. And that could be mortgage lender, bank, private money guy. Uh, there are owner carry uh, situations that you can look at as well, but those should be discussed with your intermediary to make sure you're not doing anything that's going to trigger a tax event for you. So really, the when we have our money with your company, ten thirty one X, we've got it mm -hmm. with you guys. Mm -hmm. We go talk to the bank. The bank is still looking at it. That when we're done, I'm going to have my property back. So I'm the one that's qualifying. Just because you have my money, it doesn't take it away from me. Then, right? No, you still negotiate with the bank. You still go under typical loan terms. Sometimes banks, if they're not, especially if it's a smaller community bank, they're not familiar with the structure. Now, you don't have to tell them an exchange is taking place, but if you do and they're confused, put them in talk with your intermediary. We're used to talking banks through this because it looks unintuitive to them. There's something else I want to highlight here. Let's plant a flag on selling and going to try to get a loan for the replacement property. If you're selling in an entity, if you have an LLC, particularly a multi-party LLC, and you're trying to get a loan for financing on the replacement property, a lot of lenders don't like loaning funds to an LLC, especially mortgage lenders who are going to go repackage and sell the note the next day. Right. So what you really want is to make sure that ahead of time you understand your financing options because you can't break up the LLC and then purchase property in the name of different taxpayers on the flip side, just because your mortgage lender says that's what they want. So you have to think that through before you start the exchange process, right. or you could get caught in a really awkward spot. Right. So now th there's also, um, so you can do the 1031 exchange. So we understand we've got to identify in 45. We've got to have the whole thing completed in 180. Mm -hmm. and then the exchange is done. The property is deeded back into our name, mm -hmm. and then we can put it in whatever LLC we need from there. We can involve bank financing. All the things that we would normally do can be accomplished, especially as when we're using a, a really good accommodator that understands all this, right? Yes. 
And that's one of the things, Sean, that I've always been a proponent of is, is you don't have to know everything. It's kind of like Henry Ford, right? He never yeah. professed to know everything, but he said, I will get with my people because they know. So mm-hmm. having someone like yourself with your company that says, oh, you know, actually we have seen that before. We saw mm-hmm. this happen. We know how to take care of this. We can deal with that because then you're dealing with their experience in an unfamiliar situation because the last thing that we want to have happen mm-hmm. is have something go wrong on day 179 when we're supposed to close and something happens and we can't get it closed and now we're closing on day 181. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's right. Give me an example of of a particular 1031 that you were involved with. Obviously, the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Mm-hmm. But give me an example of what you thought was a creative one or it wasn't just your normal. Let's give the listeners yeah. something, something from the inside. Yeah. So uh, let's go over a couple of examples. One would be, let's say that you uh, uh, want to sell a property, but there's going to be some seller financing involved, right? Because the buyer who's attracted to you doesn't have the cash and can't get along or doesn't want to. Mm. So we had one of these come up earlier this year where somebody was going to carry about 30% of the, of the market price of the property. Now, if you do seller financing in a 1031 exchange, uh, you run into um, a couple of different tax issues because the installment note um, uh, payments that you're going to be receiving don't qualify for the same kind of 1031 treatment that a normal sale um, uh, would qualify for. And also, uh, if you are only receiving proceeds for a certain amount of the uh, property at the beginning, say 70% of the value of the property at the beginning, it's going to make it that much harder to trade into something downstream on the back end of the exchange. So. In that case, what we did is we advised that the seller, in this case, who had uh, some relatives and friends with some excess liquidity, to go borrow money from them or have for me, have the buyer borrow money from them in one lump sum and bring the full balance of cash to closing. And this did a couple of things without getting too complicated. It circumvented the installment note issues in a 1031. So you didn't have an owner carry situation. There was actually a lump sum loan being brought to the table that could then be negotiated outside of the deal. And then two, it gave our client, the taxpayer, a lot more proceeds from day one to go and play with and purchase one or more assets. And I think in this case, they did purchase two assets because they had the extra funds down to go out and do that. So this was a situation where they received uh, full tax deferral, whereas before they've only, only gotten partial tax deferral. And they ended up getting two assets they liked as opposed to one, just because they went through that extra step. So that, that's one area where a, a QI who's been through a few of these before can help you out. Now, uh, now you just used the term, the, the QI. Qualified oh, yes. Pardon me. Yes. Qualified intermediary. You're not going to see those words anywhere else in the English language, by the way. You only see that in the 1031 context. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I had a conversation the other day with somebody from that was retired military, and there was all yeah. kinds of acronyms thrown in there. That's, and yeah. so what I like to do is just make sure that you know, I knew what it was, but just so sure. there's no QI no, good catch. intermediary. So yeah, you got another story for us, Sean? Yeah. And, and this uh, touches a, a more complicated topic, but let's say you're doing a 1031 exchange. You are under contract to sell and you're under contract to purchase. So you're going to sell in a week and purchase in a month. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's all good, but then something happens with the buyer on the front leg and he backs out of a deal or uh, maybe he, he fails to get financing, something like that. Okay. Then you're stuck in a situation where you have a property under contract to purchase, 
but now you have no idea how you're going to sell your first property in time to get the proceeds and go make that purchase with. So in a situation like this, you would look for what we call a reverse 1031 exchange. Now, the IRS understands and recognizes reverse exchanges, even though they don't report them, right? When you report any exchange, it always shows up as, as just sell first, buy second. So what we do in this circumstance is we say, okay, we have a couple of options. We can either set up a holding company and go out and buy the property that you want to buy and hold on to it for you, and then we'll sell it to you after you've found the new buyer for your relinquished property. Or we can purchase the property that your buyer just backed out of, and we can hold that until you find a permanent buyer, but that way you're able to preserve the, um, the, the, the arrow of time that we're looking for in an exchange, which is selling first and buying second. The setup for these can be rather intricate. No two are the same. I've been handling reverse exchanges for years and very, very few of them are cut and dry. Mm -hmm. But it's the kind of flexibility and dexterity that you want out of somebody who, um, just because you had one aspect of what you thought was a perfectly lined up uh, set of transactions fall through, doesn't mean the whole thing's gonna fail and now you owe Uncle Sam tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, and Sean, that's a really good point because you know I know a lot of people um, they, they get the, they get headed down the road of 1031 and they think, gosh, this is great. I'm not going to pay Uncle Sam. And they don't have their replacement property identified. And so then they, they then they go through the position they sell and then mm -hmm. they run out into the marketplace and realize that what's for sale out there isn't what they want to buy. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's the, the, the cash flow is not there. There's something wrong with it. And, and then they wind up finding themselves being forced into a bad deal or choosing to be forced into a bad deal rather than just pay the taxes on it. Yes. And so I've always advised clients, if you're going to 1031, know what you're going to buy first. I mean, if you're in a mm -hmm. seller's market, you know, you definitely want to make sure that, that uh, you, you know where you're going to go. But if you're in a mm -hmm. buyer's market, you've got, you've got options, right? I mean, yeah, you can go right. and name what you want, but, but what we found ourselves in the last, five years or so is, a, is definitely a seller's market. And so people are selling mm -hmm. and then having trouble with the replacement where if they did what you just spoke of and did a reverse where you could mm -hmm. go identify contract close and then go sell what should be mm -hmm. easy to sell because it is a seller's market, right. then they would be safe with that. Now, when you say you set up a holding company, do you actually provide financing and funding for that purchase? Usually we network with banks that are comfortable with the structure and can provide financing there. Although it's easiest on both the client uh, and ourselves if they can provide financing for it. So one of the, there are two common scenarios with a reverse exchange. The holding company that we set up just for some, um, some background here has no assets of its own. It doesn't have any funds in the bank and it can't just go borrow in its own name right. uh, because it has no income. So, what you're looking for is if we're going to go out and purchase an asset before you've sold your relinquished property, uh, then we need to get that money from somewhere. Now, some of our uh, wealthier clients are able to foot that bill up front. They'll say, fine, we'll loan $700,000 or whatever to the holding company so we can make the purchase. Or we'll put them in contact with a lender who will say, okay, we'll loan money to the holding company, but it'll be personally guaranteed by the client. And then maybe they'll take additional collateral if they need to, or they'll change the loan terms. And, and that's a conversation between them and the bank. We try not to get too involved in that negotiation. But there's a lot of ways to skin that cat to borrow a, an old 
analogy. But these are but these are relationships that you've built that the mm -hmm. banks know that that Sean, you and your company can get this done. It mm -hmm. won't be a problem of you guys screwing up the paperwork. And so mm -hmm. they have they're you're coming to the table with a team member that says, "Hey guys, we could take care of that." That's That's right. That's that's unusual in the market. I mean, that's not something that a lot of 1031 companies offer is to have that uh the, the banking power behind them to say, "Here's here's some partners that we've worked with in the past that understand yeah. what we do and understand what our clients need. That's yeah. If I can toot our horn for a second here, Shannon, I, I went to a, a 1031 conference in, I believe this was in Kansas city, although it might have, might have been in Chicago. And there are one or two of these every year and they have a bunch of investors and 1031 companies and banks. And then of course sponsors that show up and they asked a room of a couple hundred people, how many of you are attempting reverse exchanges right now? And our company was one of maybe eight hands that went up. And then they asked, how many of you are able to facilitate 10 uh, reverse exchanges where the client doesn't have financing lined up? And we were the only one in the room. We were the only one in the country, but we were the only uh, We're proud about that. Yeah. No, and that makes a lot of sense, but that comes from, I mean, that's not something you do in year one of business, you know? No. How long has your no. company been in business? 1994. So what's that, 26, 27 years now? Yeah. And this was spurred because the company headquarters are in, are in Denver, Colorado, which has been um, a really hot market for a very long time. So a lot of people find a property they want to purchase, but it gets 25 offers on the day of first day and it's sold in a week. So they don't have time to wait to sell a relinquished property um, in a 1031. So we had to get up to speed quickly on how to help our clients out. You know, and that's awesome, Sean. That that shows uh, the leadership that you guys have at your company because you're forward thinking for your client and going, hey, we got to be up to speed so that we can facilitate more of our clients' needs um, and build relationships in our business that are going to make it so that our clients can get mm -hmm. what they want out of this beneficial tax code. That's awesome. Yeah. So, Sean, what do you see what do you see happening in your industry? Uh, you, you mentioned the coronavirus has gotten everybody extended until July 15th. We're adding some days on there. Yeah. Uh, do you see things going back to normal here shortly? What, what, what do you see happening with your industry? It's a good question. And I've been trying to take the pulse of every uh, uh, connected and uh, professional out there I can find. And I've been asking all of our clients what their sense on the ground is because a lot of our clients, they're also CPAs or attorneys or brokers, or they syndicate deals. You know, these are, these are busy, successful people. I think things will be back to normal anytime soon. And uh, from what I've heard, there may be a seasonality element to the coronavirus here. And I think a lot of people, even if states and cities and the country starts to relax some of the restrictions, a lot of people are going to be reluctant to go network professionally, to go walk into new houses or new buildings for inspections. In a way, this has really ushered in the 21st, really becoming a much more digital industry, real estate that is right now. So I anticipate that we're going to continue to see some financing issues. We hope that uh, we have some return to normalcy, but people are going to have that. That's the sense I have. Yeah. Well, Sean, I really appreciate that. Um, and Sean, just so that our listeners know where you're working and 
where to get a hold of you. Tell us how they can get in touch with you in the name of your company again. Go to our website and you can fill out a contact form and we'll call you right away. But we really do like to have face-to-face -face meetings like this over, over Zoom or we have our own um, uh, our own. Uh, Social, pardon me, uh, me through LinkedIn. Uh, you can always PM me directly, or you can call our, our phone number, which is 303-504-0144. We like to get to know our clients. First, we want to make sure the exchange is the right thing for you. And second, we have a cabinet of other real estate professionals or just associated professionals who may be able to help you somewhere else where we don't have expertise. Yeah. Um, speaking of the financing relationships that we talked earlier, that's the sort of handoff that we like to be able to make because if you invest in real estate, there's a good chance you have other things going on too. And we just want to make sure that this is part of a broader strategy that's working. Well, and, and, and you're very smart to do that because relationships and real estate go hand in hand. I mean, you know, rarely yeah. does someone that's experienced with real estate, rarely do they do deals with a new broker every time or a new bank every time, or, mm -hmm. you know, in your case, a new accommodator every time. And so that's always a good thing to understand your client. So I, guys, I want to, mm -hmm. I want to emphasize a couple of things that Sean said, in case you didn't pick up on it. Number one, know your accommodator. These guys want to get to know you. They want to take the time to figure out if your needs and, and their services are going to line up. Um, you're going to want to be involved with professionals that have access to banking relationships that have, have ways to make your life easier like Sean's company does. And so I really would encourage you guys, if you're looking at a 1031 anytime soon, if you're thinking about a 1031 anytime soon, reach out to Sean Ross. You can find him on LinkedIn. Um, his company is 1031x.com. You can find them there. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I can't guarantee you where Sean's going to be. Could be Scottsdale, could be Vancouver, <laughs> could be, you know, could be Toronto, but Sean, I really yeah. do want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today here on the real estate rundown. And, uh, I do want to thank you again for the insight that you gave us. It, it's definitely awesome to have somebody that knows the business talk to us about what's going on. So thanks again, Sean. No, I appreciate it, Shannon. It's been awesome.